Testing, Marla, can you hear me? I can hear you. Great. Jim, can you hear me? Jim, can you hear me? Speak up. Sheila, can you hear me? Speak up. All right, Jim, can you hear me? Yes, sir, can you hear me? Yeah, but you got a little squiggly when I try to speak to you. Yeah, but you got a little... I heard Your that. Voice is How about squiggly. now? That's much better. Now, Dr. Hamilton, you may have to type your number in the chat. I don't know why it's not getting you to my co-host room. So um, type your number in the chat. We'll see if Dr. Marlowe can call you and walk you through because you should be in the co-host room and you're not. I'm inviting you again here, but for some reason you're not. And the only number I gave you was to go to the co-host room.
10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Good evening. Welcome to Cliff Burton Friends. Cliff Burton Friends Sport Talk, Sports Talk Show, bringing you the very best in women's athletics and HBCU sports. Tonight, <clears throat> we have a special show for you. We have coming to us, first of all, our Woman of the Month, none other than Ms. Flora Jean Hyman. Flora Jean Hyman was a volleyball player who played volleyball back in the 1970s. Flora Jean Hyman, born July 31st, 1954, in Los Angeles, California, and she died January 24th in 1986 at the age of 31 in Matsu City, Japan. Flo Hyman was one of the greatest volleyball players to ever, ever live. Let me just give you a few of her, a few of her accomplishments as we prepare to welcome her as our Woman of the Month for Black History Month here in February. AIAW, National Player of the Year in 1976. She was the first winner of the Honda Sports Award. At the time, the Broderick Award in volleyball, what it was called. Three-time All-American at the University of Houston. World Cup competition, top six players of 1981. The best hitter, World Cup competition in 1981. She won a bronze medal in the 1982 World Championships in Peru, a silver medalist in the 1984 Summer Olympics. And she's one of the greatest women athletes named the Sports Illustrated issue November 29, 1999. In 1985, Flo Hyman appeared in a film entitled Order of the Black Eagle. Her career ended way too soon. She was a professional, and while playing professional volleyball over in Japan, she was subbed out of a game, collapsed, and later on was found out that she died of something called Marfan Syndrome at the age of 31. Miss Flora Jean Hyman. Boy, she left us way too soon. One of the greatest volleyball players to ever play. Dr. Kim, what do you think of Flora Jean Hyman? Good evening, everyone. I remember uh, watching her when I was younger, and she was just, she was amazing. And it was funny because you would always know if you saw her on the court, on the volleyball court, that um, there was great hopes that the team would definitely win. She was amazing. All right, James, what do you think about her? Miss Flora Jean Hyman, volleyball. As uh, Marley said, I remember seeing her when I was younger. She was a volleyball player. And, you know, again, had probably had to go over to Japan to play pro to make some money because we didn't have a system here. And she died way too soon. Way too soon. She will be our Woman of the Month, and we will continue to honor her. Reminding we've had two previous Women of the Month for January, Coach Pat Head Summit, and we started this in December, Miss Lucia Harris. Now, a couple of more facts. The Super Bowl is coming up, as well as Valentine's Day, but for the Super Bowl, we have some history. We have the first time in history two African American quarterbacks in the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes, quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs, 
and Jalen Hurts, quarterback in the Philadelphia Eagles. But there's another champion. There's a young lady who is Jalen Hurts' agent. Her name is Nicole Lynn. And next Sunday, she will become the first black woman to become an agent to a football player that is playing in the Super Bowl. So let's make sure that we keep our eyes on the real game, which is those who control the money and those that really control the game. And so what do you think about this history making in the in, in, in process? I'm going to see if we could get Sheila through. Sheila, what do you think? I'm going to see if I can get you through. Is your line working? Give it a shot. Okay, Marlo, what do you think? That is amazing. Um, who knew that, of course, uh, well, we women, we know, but who knew that uh, Miss Lynn was behind the scenes controlling it? Um, I think it's amazing and it's wonderful, you know, to see um, those two, court, the two quarterbacks um, that will be starting um, in the Super Bowl. Um, and it's just hats goes off all the way around with her in the background pushing it all the way for, for Jalen. Yes. Jim. Yes. I, you know, I think Kyrie Irving's mother's his agent too. Is that right? I'm not sure about that one, but I mean, I'm glad to have black African-Americans and African-American women leading the way in this charge. I read the statistics, Jim, that said there are only uh, 12% women who are agents in the, no, let me back up, 12% agents that are in the NFL that are black men or women, but she's the first one to have a client in the Super Bowl. So uh, the other thing that Jalen Hurts is doing that's unique is his whole team, his marketing team, his communications team, they are all women. He's one of the few athletes that I've seen that have done this. So he's uh, definitely said, and it's not because of gender, but he says she was clearly, and they are clearly the best ones who have come to him to do the job. So in a all mostly white uh, dominated field, there's some breakthroughs that are happening. And not enough, but there are some breakthroughs that are happening. So hats off. Hats off. Now, we have some other things to talk about um, uh, on our show today. And one of those um, are the WNBA. We're going to talk about the WNBA just a little bit, free agency. Two big moves that have been made. Um, number one, Candace Parker. Candace Parker has signed with the Las Vegas Aces, and they're a team that is already loaded, and they're the champions in the WNBA. Uh, Marla, what do you think about Candace? She's joining uh, Asia Wilson already and a stacked team that are already champions. This kind of reminds me of when Kevin Durant joined the Golden State Warriors. What do you think? Can you see my tears? She's, <laughs> she, she left us in Chicago, but that's okay because she already has the championship. So maybe she'll just go on and just help them win one in Vegas. You know, that's okay. But I'm excited for her. Wherever she goes, she's top-notch. So... Good for her. Good for Las Vegas. Yeah, but we are crying years. in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, she's 36 or 37, and so she has the right to, to go where she wants to go. Jim, what do you think about that move? 
I think it's a great move, but I also see the the WNBA is forming super teams. If you look what's happening out in uh, New York, which has not won a title in any of the 25 years, and uh, Vegas, which won the title a couple last year, wasn't it? So, you know, it, it's shaping up to be a great season. Mm-hmm. 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 One more thing has happened uh, in the world of sports, and we like to cover it all. Miss Nicole Andrews, the figure skater, she's also in a field that's uh, not very well populated by African-Americans. She's the first one to win a uh, medal in figure skating in 35 years. The last one to do it was Debbie Thomas, and she just did that about six years ago. So she's to be applauded. She's 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 trailblazing and continuing to open the way for um, for women in the field of uh, of uh, figure skating. So we want to say congrats to her. We're going to take a brief break and then we're going to come right back. So we have, I'm going to give another shot to see if we can get Sheila. We've accepted her as a caller in the co-host room. We're having some difficulties here. Sheila, can you get through? Can we hear you? We're still, still having difficulty. So let's continue on with our conversation. We're going to take this segment to continue a talk from last week. Uh, with Dr. Hamilton, for some reason we had her but she's lost the line as well. We get her back, we'll pick her up. We want to continue a conversation and we want you to type your statements in the chat room. It's concerning the Tyree Nichols situation. Um, We've had the policeman being charged in Memphis. And now I understand that three of them belong to a fraternity and that fraternity has also disbanded them They've lost their homes, and they're definitely up for federal charges. I want you to 
give us any questions or statements you have for us here in the co-host room. Um, until we can get Dr. Hamilton through, we want to continue with this conversation. Uh, Jim, I'll let you lead off and give us some statements about the Tyree Nichols case. Who said you wanted to comment, Cliff? I want you to comment on the Tyree Nichols case, where it is now, and what do you think about that case? We're going to discuss that because we can't get Dr. Hamilton through the line, nor Sheila. Okay, well, I know you mentioned about the fraternities mm -hmm. and sorority. Well, and I'll just go and blanket it in sororities. No, none of the Divine Nine have in any of their bylaws or policies that that, that, that is a, that that is something that they condone. So when one of our own does something like that, you know, you, you have to you have to think quick, think fast, and disassociate yourself with them. Mm -hmm. Because that is you know, we're about community service, working with youth to try to get them to where they need to be. We're not about murdering people. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've come out with strong stances against uh, all these other all these other cop killings. So this one is no different, even if it's one of our own. But, you know, I think the Memphis situation, because it involves a unit called Scorpion, in Detroit they had a unit called Stress 50 years ago, which sounds similar to that, which they had to disband because the cops were just going, were just out of control and going wild. Mm -hmm. And you were finding deaths and people getting hurt for no good reason. There is no good reason, but just for no reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, um, I've, I've talked to Derek Dalton and of course, Jeff, who had security, he was on last week and they tried to give the flip side of it that do you think the policemen may now take a hands-off approach too much in areas of high crime. In other words, in in retaliation, when there is crime, they won't do anything or very little. Do you think that's going too far the other way? I hope not. But I've always thought to prevent a lot of these situations from happening, you need to, A, when someone does something like this, take take it out of their pension to fund because Tyree Nichols family is going to get some money, but it doesn't, the people of Memphis don't need to pay for a few cops misdeeds. If mm -hmm. you take it out of their pension, take it out of the police fund, hit the, hit the cops where it hurts. I think a lot of these things will subside, but right now, I mean, you know, they're not going to lose any money in this. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the citizens of Memphis and the citizens of wherever these heinous crimes commit that are paying the money out of pocket, not out of out of their tax money. And that should stop. Mm -hmm. What about the uh, immunity laws and the George Floyd laws? Do you think that we have some chance of those changing? I would hope so. Marlo, your thoughts. And, and also we want our guests to type some things in the chat. Uh, we could just pick it up the subject again. We have a lot of difficulty getting Dr. Hamilton or Sheila through the line. So we want to continue a topic from last week. 
I, I mean, I would hope once if we can ever get the bill passed, you know, that it would definitely, you know, the laws would definitely change some of the actions, um, you know, of, of the police when they are, you know, stopping um, civilians um, in any capacity. Um, and my, I just had a question because I was curious, um, why is it that they were able to bond themselves out? Was it just based on the charges that they were given? Because I would have thought that maybe they would have had at least a no bond, um, you know, if anything else. So I thought that was quite interesting that they were able to bond themselves out. Um, I guess I, I read where some of the bonds were um, 350,000, would you know that's what 10%, and then some, a couple of the other ones were 250,000. Um, so I thought that that was quite interesting that they were able to, you know, bond themselves or get bonded, you know, out. Maybe they put their houses up for collateral, you know, I don't know, but I just thought that that was quite interesting. So hopefully we'll be able to get the laws passed, you know, quickly just to try to get some movement. Mm-hmm better movement and in actions yeah i'm going to ask if uh dr terry williams a triple threat or for or soon to be who was a former guest of ours on the show and who's also a former professional basketball player um did she join us in the co-host room uh your opinions can you hear us terry i can hear you just fine um i don't a little loud see I, I do want to share with you i i had a, a ride in an uber actually it was to see the fisk university gymnastics team perform here in new jersey the other night and the uber driver was a former policeman in south carolina and i opened up this conversation with him and during the ride he said to me he um he did not he left the force and he left the force for a reason. He left the force because I said, well, you guys get the training. You guys get the training. So what's, what's the problem? He said he left the force in South Carolina because as soon as you get to the actual police station or unit where they assign you, 
they flat out they tell, flat you tell you that um, forget everything that you learned in your police training at the academy. Uh, this is what we do here. And he said out of his own mouth that if you don't comply with what their rules are, you will find yourself on a call and needs a backup and there will be no backup. There will be no backup. And so um, you either comply with their rough tactics that they were using or you leave the force. And he said his conscience would not let him stay on the force and do that. So he was speaking about that, that, that code, that code of blue, silent code of, code of blue. And he said it's there and it's very prevalent in, 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 in every, every station. So uh, what are your thoughts on that, James? Well, having two cousins that are former police officers, you know, I, I understand that, you know, even in Nashville, you have a police union and you have a black police officers union. And that code is very, very hard to break. Darn near impossible. Mm -hmm. Because they feel they're on an island by themselves and they have to protect each other. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the police chief in Memphis? Um, At first, it appeared to many that um, she did the right thing. And she did, firing the policeman right away. But they're saying that she's the one who formed that unit when she got to Memphis and had a history uh, in another town of forming that that unit, knowing they were aggressive. Um, What's your thoughts Jim, what's your thoughts, Marlo? And someone write in the ch- in the chat your thoughts on what should happen to the police chief. And then after that, I want to talk about what do you think should happen with the medical personnel when they got to the scene who got fired. And in fact, the t- state of Tennessee, I read, has suspended their licenses. So let's talk about the police chief first. And you could type your statements in the chat as well, your comments. I'm- I believe that eventually, because she started the program and either turned a blind eye to it or didn't know anything about what was happening in the program, that she'll eventually be fired. Mm -hmm. You know, the buck has to stop at the top. And if she either willingly allowed this or unwillingly didn't know the depths of what was going on, she's going to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. Now, Amarla, what's your comments on it? Dr. Kemp, what's your comments on what should happen with the police chief in Memphis? Okay, we lost it for a second. We'll take a break and we'll come right back.
Alrighty. We also have um, a comment from Miss Joelle Bowers. It says, rest in peace. This is in the chat. Tyree Nichols, as a native Tennessean, HBCU, and D9, my response is do the crime, do the time, court systems, and legislation. All righty. Thank you, Miss Powers. My second question, Jim and uh, Terry, I'm going to get you to unmic again. Hopefully, we can hear you if not typing in the chat. What about the medical personnel? And I've heard some different views on that. The three medical personnel that arrived on the scene were Tyree Nichols, and they were, um, they couldn't get, they didn't get out the car right away. They saw a man on the ground and they could not get out the car right away, or they did not, excuse me, and render medical personnel. What are your thoughts, uh, Jim? No, excuse me, Terry. I'm asking if we can hear you. Terry? Hi, can you hear me now? It's better to type it in. You better can hear you. I'm here. Okay, now you're great. Come on, we can hear you. We can hear you then, Terry. No, I think that was Harriet that was speaking. Dr. Okay. Hamilton. Okay, great. Okay, so Terry, type it in the chat. Jim, tell us what you think about the medical personnel. Well, Cliff, I hate to do this, but you tell us about the Hippocratic Oath even though these were not doctors. What is that? Jim, there's no doubt by law and by the oath that they should have gotten out of those vehicles right away. There's no doubt they broke the law, and there's no doubt that the uh, Board of Tennessee acted appropriately, and the uh, whoever's over them in the EM, EMS system acted appropriately. They didn't do their job. Now, I spoke with someone about this in EMS personnel. I said... I don't think that they wanted to beat Tyree Nichols or him to die. So what made him hesitate? And he said, let me tell you what it, what it is. When they come upon a scene like that and they see police standing around and they look and see somebody that's during their dead, they also know that if they go right away and render care, that they're going to be a witness on the stand down the line. Okay and that they also received threats and intimidation from those same policemen and police forces toward them and their families if they have to testify, and they know they will, down the line. So that is a part or was a part of their hesitancy to do that. And so it's become very interesting. So Jim, yeah, they are guilty of not doing their job, but how much punishment under law, because the district attorney it's now talking about possibly bringing charges against them. You know, I, I, I think we all know what the policemen are, feel what they should get, but what happens with these medical personnel and to what degree? Dr. Kemp, what do you think? Uh, I think regardless of, um, regardless of what you think will happen, um, you still have, uh, you, you still have the duty to mm -hmm. take care of that person when you arrive on that scene, um, regardless of if you're going to have to testify, um, that that's your job. That's what you are supposed to do. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I I don't know if I could just me personally. I don't think I could just sit back and and, and do nothing and just you know watch um, others you know not do anything at all. I guess my second uh, question is a medical personnel, and I'm one of them as well. Do you think 
down the line that they would ever be given reconsideration to reinstate their medical licenses to practice as EMS? I would hope so, but let me throw this in there. Sure, Do you Jim. think the code of blue extends to EMT workers? No. Since they work so closely with the police? They work closer together, Jim, but in my mind, no. Uh, when I spoke to this EMS worker, now they work here in, in an area that's not as rough, but I believe that that intimidation and threat to them, because they, remember, they probably see a lot of this is real. So they're put in a situation because of this that can make them think uh, second when they roll up on this kind of an emergency. No, do do I think they're in cahoots or want any harm to the young man? No, I do think though they they had a second thought because of uh, they know they're going to be in the middle of a, a deep prosecution after and have to process and have to uh, testify later. Interesting. Yeah, because, okay, you know, as an EMT, yeah. Cliff, you could be sent into a rough area, and you know the police are that's the one that snitched on us. We're not going to give them any cover. And, you know, their lives could be endangered by, you know, work hazard just because of that, unfortunately. Absolutely. And, and I just wanted to put those thoughts out there because uh, they gave me a different view. And I hope I hope everybody else. We have one thing in the chat. Terry says, I think the medical personnel had a responsibility to administer care. I'm unclear whether the medical personnel had clear uh, synopsis of the situation of updates on the situation scenario uh, is necessary necessarily required before they are able or required to act. Mm. Well, that's the great thoughts. Listen, we have somebody, we have Dr. Hamilton through the line. Now, we're here tonight for part two, and we are so grateful we've gotten her through the line. Dr. Hamilton was here in December, Dr. Harriet Kimbrough Hamilton. She's one of the pioneers in sports. She's one of the 50 women. If you read the book, Pat Summit, Tennessee Trailblazers, 50 women, 50 years, she's one of those pioneers that has moved our sport forward from Title IX. She's coming with part two tonight, and she wants to talk to us about how Title IX has affected or not been as effective for minority women. So we are so glad you've gotten through the line. That's welcome. Dr. Harriet Hamilton, and our moderator leading this would be Mr. James Waddell. Good evening, good evening. Good evening, Coach Hamilton. Hello. I um, read over your very impressive bio, and you're an author. How many books have you written? I have written two, um, and in the process of writing a third one, but this will be a historical uh, event of Fisk University and Title IX uh, history from the beginning, because I was I had front row seat tickets <laughs> since I was the I was the first one on the first uh, team. Uh, so I want to document uh, the first twenty years of Fisk and women's sports. I think it's important because. A lot of our kids there, they don't, they don't have to know who I am. That's not important. But too many of my former players um, worked so hard 
in in sometime adverse conditions and still achieve greatness and i don't want that history of those girls to ever be forgotten yes i um you know i was there with cliff graduate 85 and when you were named athletic director you know i was just happy for you because i knew you as a person that was no nonsense but fair person. And I did not know the history of it. You know, I, I was teaching in Detroit at the time. And my AD there was Brenda Gatlin, who was the first uh, female coach of a male sport and then the first female athletic director. So okay. I just, you know, thought it was ho-hum. But, you know, I, I congratulate you on being the first in the SIAC. Well, I appreciate that. Um, it was because of my mentor, uh, Coach Martin, John Martin, who was the athletic director, and he had to really work his magic on me because I was pretty rough <laughs> in terms of being no nonsense. I would fly off the handle, and Cliff can tell you this, and maybe you've heard, I would fly off the handle in a minute because I, I was of that generation. We were not going to be refused, denied, this was exactly at Title IX. So I had a different attitude, but thank God uh, Coach Martin schooled me and pruned me, and I, I did a pretty good job. I'm very proud of, of what I did there. What were some of the things that Coach Martin did to prepare you for, your, for being the first woman AD, African-American well, whenever, woman AD? whenever I crossed the line, um, he would he would be in my grill i mean he mixed no words and uh would let me know and uh would would hold me to task and accountable for what i said and what i did um it was i was so bad that one time we had to go to the president's office and he knew it was going to be a rough meeting because of course athletics was not the favorite of this president i won't mention who it is and he knew if the president said the wrong thing or looked at me and said the wrong thing that i was going to say something and i was going to be fired so the first thing he said when i um i went in inside the president's office he said no matter what happens do not open your mouth and that was one of the lessons i learned you don't always have to talk Sometimes you really just need to listen and figure it out. And so um, there were several instances like that where I learned and I figured it out. But um, okay. what do you significant accomplishment in sports or overall? Repeat that again. What do you think it was your most significant accomplishment? in your career? Um, I think it was being one of the few women uh, to be named athletic director. Um, that was a big deal during my time. Um, Dorothy Ritchie, I don't know if you ever heard of that name, but she's a she was a black female um, that was truly the first she was the first black female athletic director 
uh, at Chicago State, which was a Division I school. And I was the first in Division Three, which the largest membership uh, at the NCAA uh, are the Division Three schools. So, you know, I, I read about that and I felt like we were making a stand um, for others to come forward. So what we did, she did at Chicago State, what I did at Fisk, and then later on, other women uh, came and it wasn't such a battle at, after that. Uh, so that is probably what I'm most proud of is that I, I was counted in the number uh, the hold the line uh, until things got better, and I felt good about that. Okay, and we fast forward 30 years, and you ended up working for Teresa Lawrence Phillips, one of your protégés, who you hired as an assistant coach as athletic director, who has her own uh, history of being the first female to coach in a male's basketball game. How, how was that working with your protege? Uh, at first it was funny <laughs> because <laughs> I said, you offering me a job? <laughs> so um, that, that was a little uh, awkward, but um, it was a situation which she knew I would appreciate uh, maybe helping in that instant. There was uh, some problems with the uh, current coach and <laughs> some things. He crossed the line in terms of Title IX protocols. And so they were in need of someone that could come in uh, and hold, really structure everything to run smoothly. The uh, athletes were frustrated, especially the girls. They were upset uh, because of things that had gone down. And so she knew I had all the experiences in the world to deal with uh, the tennis team and really bring them back uh, and settle the program down. Um, which I did. I had a meeting with them. She was there, and uh, all she asked is, "Do you have some, do you have anything that you would like to share with the team?" And then I just told them, and I I'll keep that to myself and the team <laughs> because uh, <laughs> I wasn't anything negative, but I just kind of straightened up the ship to say this is where mm -hmm. we're headed. Okay, and um, if you have any other ideas, we need to communicate now because there's only one captain to the ship, and that's going to be me. And uh, I let them let them know who was in charge. Well, and I let them know I'm here for them. So if you are having some kind of problems or seeing, um, you know, the destination, let's talk. Let's get that out in the air with just you and me. I don't do that group thing when, you know, groups have problems. And then when one talks, the other one want to talk more. Uh, I'm more frustrated than you are because 
I don't do that. Uh, I learned a long time ago, uh, you, you calm things down by listening to people, but you don't want uh, it to be a, a group uh, talk where everybody is trying to feel each other's feelings or hard feelings, and I don't do that. So no one really came forward, but uh, later on, they told me that one of my graduate students uh, came to them and gave them the 411 of me. And they said, we already knew about you before we met. <laughs> and I, I only thing I could do was laugh because I pretty much, uh, I was a teacher, I was a professor at Tennessee State University and had the sport management program, uh, the master program. And I ran it just like I ran, you know, I run anything else, tight, straight, and it, my, my direction. <laughs> so uh, they laughed. They just laughed. They laughed and I laughed. I couldn't do anything but laugh. And I, I didn't ask, I said, I don't want to know what he told okay? I don't want to know that. <laughs> so uh, we have an understanding and we have an accord. Uh, am I right? And they all said, yes, coach. I said, okay, we're good. <laughs> so we had a very good season. We did. I enjoyed the girls and I was also over the boys. And they even told me the same thing. We already know about you. Um, so I, I don't want to know what was said, okay, because I don't want to go into it. But uh, let's have, uh, uh, you know, let's, let's try to win. Let's win and let's have fun. And we did. And we did. We had fun. And they won. I mean, they won. They had a good season. Well, I'm sure your reputation preceded itself, and I'm sure that it was a positive. It sounds like it was a positive. Uh, she's no nonsense, and she, but she's fair, and that's all you can ask for in a coach. True, true. Uh, and I still believe that if people know that you are in their corner, but you will let them know where you're coming from. Uh, I think people respect that. They may not love you. And that's always been my experience. And my father taught me, uh, I don't care, you know, don't don't care if people love you. You need to make sure they respect you. And that was everything. And I mean, that was everything. My father was, if you think I'm no nonsense, my father was the master of it. He did not play. And he did not, I'm a little, I have humor. My father did not have him, so can you you can imagine now how that was? Oh yes. Now I, you you said that um, Title Nine has failed the African American female athlete. Could you elaborate on that? Well, let me say this: Title Nine um, has done fantastic things for uh, everybody including men, um, and in including black female athletes, uh, athletic administrator, but the conversation and the discussion that needs to be had at this point in time, after 50 years, okay, because we, we, we celebrated that last year being the 50th year. 
Now moving forward, um, a discussion and resolutions need to be made going forward from here. There are disparities uh, for women of color. Um, and I can kind of elaborate on that. First of all, um, there are several organizations, the Women's Sports Foundation, uh, the National Federation of High School uh, Sports, uh, you know, we could go Black Women's Sports Foundation. It's documented that the gains of women are great, but uh, women of color are, are left behind in several areas uh, due to the fact that Title IX is a gender uh, law. That's all it was supposed to address. Uh, discrimination, harassment, uh, equal opportunities in educational institutions, and it did that. It's doing that. I, I, I truly believe that we are not there yet because in most women's program, it's still not uh, paired as well with the men's program. The men are still spending more and have more resources than the women. So we're not there yet, and I think we're going to get there, and we're on our way. But when it comes to uh, women of color, um, we lag behind in several uh, ways. When we look at NCAA schools, Division I, uh, of all of the athletes, female athletes, black women only make up 12% of the female athlete population. Only 12%. So we can't, we can't let that stand. We, we need to have more uh, girls and black girls uh, getting those scholarships and playing on uh, those different teams. And especially those teams, teams I call club sports. We're not represented well at all. Tennis, golf, um, in some instances, uh, volleyball. Well, you know, all we got to do is look at the championships of the NCAA championships. Now, we are well represented in basketball, and that's where we are. We are in women's basketball, and we are in track and field. And we can see that when we see the NCAA championships. But where, where else can we be? You know that that number needs to uh, increase because what we're talking about is having an opportunity to a college education. And in in some instances, in a lot of instances, that's that is the root for uh, maybe having a better life, providing for your family. Uh, providing for whatever you need to in the future, be better prepared. Um, and 12% is not enough. Let me read you a statement that uh, Billie Jean King, who's the founder of the Women's Sports Foundation, stated, Title IX does not protect all girls equally, not yet. 
girls of color continue to be underserved and overlooked. So when in that statement, we are being overlooked in uh, other sports. Uh, and I think that race plays a part in it. I do believe that. The uh, black women are strongly represented again in just two sports. So that needs to change. That needs to change. Outside that sport, black women just make up 7.8% of the female athletes in sports outside of track and basketball. That's the discussion. What What is going on? What is the problem? And how can we resolve that? If we look at, oh, if you want to discuss that at this point, um, we can. Yes. Your comment. Jim, I had a question. Okay. I had a question if I can, Jim. I, I was reading an article on this, Dr. Dr. Hamilton, and you're right, Title IX states in the article was meant to um, equal or, or, or at least try gender disparity, close the gap. It never intended racial disparity. And then it stated in the article, most of our inner city black girls or guys for that instance, they're never exposed to the rowing team, the lacrosse team, Yes. Uh, what's that other game they play with the little ball and they throwing it in a stick? I can't remember lacrosse. Well, that is lacrosse. lacrosse. That, is lacrosse. that is lacrosse. I don't know. I, I don't even know them. But <laughs> our kids are not even exposed to that, so that becomes a racial disparity. We talk about industry: Chicago, Detroit, DC, yes. New York. That's a racial problem, and it also becomes an economic problem. And until legislation is passed to address that, I, it becomes very difficult to see how that differences made up. You can't make choices when you don't know what those choices are. Correct. And I taught in uh, inner city school, mm-hmm. middle school, mm-hmm. a- as a physical educator. And we had an instant where um, uh, the other coaches and I tried very hard to expose the kids to the so-called uh, country club sports. Uh, and what we found was the the kids were very open to learning that, but because of the lack of facilities, lack of uh, resources, and lack of financial support, because one of the things they found in the high school is that if if uh, if you attended a majority of a majority white school, you are exposed more to more sports. Mm-hmm. And you have the facilities like a tennis and a lacrosse because you've got the uh, equipment and you've got teachers that are willing to uh, have a full program. Now, if you go to a majority black school, then uh, there is going to be a pinch between the male and the female athletic programs. And usually those are run by uh, principals that uh, are going to lean toward uh, making sure the boys have what they need. Football, 
basketball, and then we'll we'll have something for the girls. You know, I've heard that so many times in my career. Just go over in that corner and have something for the girls. Um, and that's a major problem because these girls don't have um, they don't have the funds. And again, here's a disparity, an economic disparity. Yes, yes. And these girls are, are not going to get it anywhere else. You know, all you have to do is light a fire uh, of opportunity. For me, basket, it was basketball, mostly tennis. And I got tennis in high school because I went to a predominantly white school. But that was in the middle of, of, of integration, so I had no choice. But I got tennis uh, information. I got, I got to learn tennis. I got to see tennis. I was taught tennis. And then I took that on my own because I thought, this is a great sport. I love smacking this ball as hard as I can. Um, and that's what I'm talking about. There's disparity there. And Title IX was not designed to uh, look at and deal with those issues of race disparities in athletics at the high school level or the middle school level. No. So uh, a lot of those individuals, administrators, feel like they don't have to address that. As opposed to on a collegiate level, you know, you've got to report that you've got to say that you're doing you are making progress in terms of the women's program and you are are meeting the needs of your female athletes. So uh, we can make a comment on that. I think that's that's a lot uh, that I'm giving you, I know. But we can look at athletic administration. Uh, white women have a majority of those positions of assistant, AD, associate AD, than, than black women. And that's because I feel like it is a race thing. When you walk into a room, I was interviewed one time uh, for a job at a Power Five uh, school. And the minute I walked into the room, I was the only black in the room. So now you tell me, what are my odds? What are my odds? First of all, I'm not a male and I'm a black female. So black women tend to face double jeopardies because the first thing you, uh, uh, you're gonna see is that I'm a black woman. And then I don't know where you're coming from in terms of being fair or judging me on my character and my resume instead of other concepts that you might have. So that is a problem. That's a disparity that needs to be addressed and uh, resolved. I mean, I can go on. I mean, we look at the Power Five uh, colleges in the country, we only have three black women that are in athletic director positions. One here in Nashville, where I I live, Candace. Yes, at Vanderbilt, Candace Lee. And that's because her mentor, uh, Dr. Williams, uh, groomed her for this position. 
and knew that and she was ready. Williams well. Okay, all right. And so when he passed, uh, they felt very comfortable, you know, because they knew of her and knew that she was uh, was ready to do this. Um, Nina King at Duke University, who's, uh, I think is vice president yes. uh, and athletic director, which speaks volume. Um, Carla Williams at the University of Virginia. Uh, so really now there are only five or six just women at, as that are athletic directors at Power Five Country. And, and, and it's good to know that out of those five or six, three of them are uh, black women. Mm -hmm. So we may be gaining in, in that aspect, but HBCUs are leading the way for black women in terms of opportunities. Yes. It's HBCUs have always led the way for women in sports. We could go all the way back to um, Tuskegee University, who was the, I mean, they had uh, a team that went to the Olympics. The first black woman to win an Olympic gold uh, came from that program. And also from that program is a Dr. Nell Jackson. Uh, she was on the Olympic team, but she was the first African-American period to be a head coach of an Olympic team. Not too many people know that. It was her. Uh, so HBCUs have led the way in terms of now look at, um, we have two black quarterbacks in the uh, Super Bowl. But I can recall a time when those quarterbacks coming mm -hmm. from HBCUs were not welcome. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about Justin Street mm -hmm. uh, Gilliam and what he could do today. So um, there are disparities, and I I would like to have I I would like for most of us, I would like for all of us, people of color, to continue to push for uh you know more opportunities for all of all of our girls whether they're in middle school high school or college there we've got some problems there we're not getting our fair share of opportunities toward scholarships being seen um toward having the opportunity to be exposed to and you, you never know where the next Serena Williams or Venus Williams could come from because before them uh, there was Gibson before Gibson there was Aura Washington yes. Yes. in the early 1920s and she was a heck of an athlete because not only did she win ATA like seven years straight she was playing professional basketball so this lady was an awesome athlete but that was when we supported each other in our communities. So we had that advantage, like the Negro Leagues. Um, girl, uh, black women were playing basketball turn of the century, 1920s. Leagues in Chicago. A lot of people don't know that. The ATA, the American Tennis Association, which is a black tennis association, we were we were had our own table in terms of playing tennis 
uh, and we could go on and on. As long as we were in our own community, we supported each other and we supported the opportunity for uh, women. We have a history of that uh, at Tennessee State. So uh, now that we are spread out, um, we've got disparities that uh, I think Title IX needs to do that. And and I'm going to, so I'm, I'm sure you all want to discuss some of the things I've told you. Don Stanley, who is the um, women's basketball coach, of course, South Carolina, very successful. She said, when we want all women to be successful, I do believe it falls under Title IX. But I don't think there's enough support for black women. I just don't. So she obviously sees exactly what is happening and more of us need to see that and speak up um, so that we don't have just 12% of the female athletes at an NCAA school. This is outside HBCUs. Mm -hmm. This is not including HBCUs. That, that number needs to change. We need more of our girls to have the opportunity to free education. That's just a select group that's getting that opportunity. Dr. Hamilton, I have a question or two in the chat, and Jim, we're going to come back to you. Um, Ms. Bowers, absolutely think of soccer and hockey also. Exposure, equitable funding, provisions. Thanks, Coach Hamilton, once again, looking out and paving the way. Amen. And now, um, given the number of schools in Nashville, Tennessee, were there other female coaches that you were able to talk with about what was going on with you, job, going on with your job, and how to make it better, like Coach Starks at TSU? Well, Starks, Coach Starks and I, um, you know, it's it, it was tough because we never were we never were in common places, and and you know, being a coach, um, your schedule is your life. Mm -hmm. uh, so besides my family, Coach Martin, uh, my mentor, who was there and then he left, um, but his number was always open. I could call him at any time. Uh, I, in fact, I did call him several times. Uh, Coach, we're going to host the conference championships here in Nashville. What are the things I need to do? And he directed me and told me and said, call back again, whatever. So here was, that was my mentor. No, I did not have a female counterpart uh, in this area that I could talk to or speak to. Yeah, of course, Vanderbilt, they had their own women's uh, administrator, women's uh, AD for women. Um, and I knew her, but we didn't travel the same circuit, you know. And so, no, um, but I was grateful for the men, Coach Thompson, who was the retired athletic director before uh, he was the athletic director at Fisk. So I had men mentors who wanted me to do good, who saw that I could do good, and I was awfully grateful to them. But now we have women mentors. You know, we have people in place, and I try to be mentors to all of my coaches, uh, all of the women that go into um, athletics, I just let them know you can call me and we can talk. And if I don't know the answer, I'll go find it. 
or you know i'll get you in touch with somebody that i think will help so no i only had male my male mentors coach thompson and coach martin but they were awfully good um at getting me together they really were they were kind of like my stepfathers <laughs> uh, they wouldn't let me if i made a wrong move they would let me know you know so i knew there was respect and love there which i appreciated from both coach i think we have one more question in the chat i'm sorry jim but this is a tough one that probably when when you were starting down the path of athletic directorship and, and, and truly present day women in athletic positions would anticipate having to deal with. It says, with transgender being accepted more and more, should they for women's sports, should they qualify for women's sports and scholarships? Well, that That's is an issue today. Yes, that is an issue today. And I taught that in my graduate class that they needed to be uh, very much aware of this situation because every school, um, especially high school, middle school, uh, would have to, uh, you know, be able to direct and make the right decisions. Um, if I was in an administrative position, uh, clearly the high schools and the middle schools, the athletic association, uh, and it's unfortunate that here in Tennessee, they've already kind of are trying to go in a direction um, of eliminating people's opportunity. And I, I, I'm not for eliminating people's opportunity, but I don't think there's a coverall decision that can be made. I think it should be left up to the school who's working with the parents, who knows the parents, who, who knows the individual. When you begin to eliminate people's opportunity, I have a problem with that. Um, you know, so I, I think that each school would have to deal with, um, you know, rural schools, schools that are on the west side of Nashville, a school that's on the east side, of, you know, they, they would have to make that call because I don't think there's one, I, I don't believe that you, ha, you have even touched into who and what you're dealing with in terms of the family, the uh, parents, uh, the individual. Uh, I just, I think the, the tone is you don't want to take away people's opportunity. I was just going to piggyback. Cliff and I were talking earlier this week an example that the MEAC has set. The MEAC has five of eight female athletic directors and, and uh, the commissioner is also an African-American female. Yes. We, again, um, HBCUs have always led the way. And when we look at the stats, um, in fact, I was looking at the stats of HBCUs. In 2021, HBCUs accounted for 37% of the black men and 30%, 36% of the black women hired as athletic directors. Mm -hmm. Now, that's impressive compared to what we look at um, Power Five 
uh, schools. And so, um, you know, and also of, of the five conferences that are all black, three of the commissioners are black females. Am I correct in that? We've had Dr. Barnes on our show and we are reaching out to Dr. McWilliams from the CIAA and then I can't remember the name from the MEAC. So you're right. All three females. Yeah. So that lets you know, and that's consistent in our community. That is consistent with what we've done in the past. Our communities have always embraced, you know, whatever needs to be embraced and help forward, uh, you know, people. And, and we've done that in, you know, the Negro League. Of course, you know, my dad played Negro League ball. But if it wasn't for the Negro Leagues, there never would have been a Jackie Robinson because they were getting them ready to push them forward, whatever generation that was, and a Hank Aaron. And so our community have always been able to, uh, you know, give opportunity and push people forward and prepare them for future opportunities. And the HBCUs does that well. That's why I love HBCUs. Well, Dr. I'd feel Kemp. remiss if I... Go ahead, Jim. I, you know, I, ahead, I don't want to change the subject, but I'd feel remiss if I got out of here without without asking you, since you were worked at Bethune-Cookman, how you feel about the Ed Reed saga with Bethune? Mm. Well, l- let me say this. Yes, I worked at Bethune-Cookman. <laughs> and, and I am probably... The worst, the you you don't even want me to go there because <laughs> see I'm he's sorry. laughing he done read the I'm book sorry. he's I'm read sorry. the book that was my first job coming out of grad school and I started the women's athletic program at Bethune Cookman so you think he got treated bad hello <laughs> you haven't y'all look you haven't I read the book. Read the book, get get a passage of the book when I was at Bethune. So when I heard that, my uh, friend said, well, what do you think about that? I said, well, based on my experience, I would say I'm not surprised. Uh, even though there were different people, different situations, um, but I was there. Yes, I was there at Bethune-Cookman at one time in my career. And I was not treated well at all, but that experience, that experience made me, uh, it schooled me. It schooled me. And when you come from another situation where you have positivity and people, you know, everything is going forward and then you go somewhere where who knows what, and you don't know what you're walking into. Um, I think that might have been, the situation with him, he might not have been totally schooled on the total aspect. I think when he got there, he's probably saw, well, I can do this, that, and the other, but you have to have cooperation too at that level to do this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got to Bethune, he didn't have a choice. Cause title nine said, <laughs> <laughs> so they were forced. So can you can imagine 
little old me at 23 and 24, but they had no clue. As my family said, they didn't have a clue about you, did they? <laughs> I said, no, they didn't. <laughs> Dr. Hamilton, we thank you so much. Uh, you know, this is not our last conversation. You have an open open door. You know that <laughs> always. And we need that door open to continue to push this Title IX forward and and, and also the racial racial disparities in yes. athletics. But uh, you definitely kicked on the door. And uh, those behind you have to continue to, <laughs> and I know you're still kicking on the door, have to come behind mm-hmm. you and, and continue to open it up. Um, I'm going to give Dr. Kemp, if it's okay with you, Jim, the last question before we go, or statement. Dr. Kemp. Well, Dr. Hamilton, thank you. It has been a pleasure. I just want you to know that I ordered the book. Oh, good. And oh, you I- you going to laugh. I know. So when I talk to you, you gonna giggle too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and, and also just my- by listening to you, sometimes I tend to believe that segregation for us was not all that bad in some instances. I I, I agree with that. I think in a lot of instances, you know, it wasn't we were never going to get equal footing in terms of um you know the the books um the we had the teachers now because my my teachers when i was in uh elementary school and middle school oh they didn't play mm-hmm. we were taught and we were disciplined in in black schools uh but in terms of getting equal footing on facilities and the latest book and and education and opportunities in terms of facilities, you know, um, that's what segre- that's what uh, integration did for us. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hamilton, thank you so much. Um, we're glad we got you through the line. It was well worth the wait, as we knew it would be. And of course, we're going to bring you back again. Um, we're looking forward to your book that's going to be coming out. Let us know. And I we will push it for you for sure. And uh, in the future, as you know, this is the station where we. We have the best of female athletics and HBCU sports coming up next month, or excuse me, the end of this month, we have a black female coming up to coaching ranks, Brittany Anderson, the assistant coach for the um, Cardinals out there, Palo Alto with Tara Vanderham, Stanford, and she's black. And she's um, since she's been there the last two years, they're 96 and five. She's the guards coach for Haley Jones, projected to go number two in the WNBA draft. And then after that, we have Kimberly Meadows Clark coming the first Monday of next month. She's the president of a new league, HBCU Professional Basketball Association. They're going to have their draft. So you want to come back for that. And then we have an Olympian coming, Randy Givens, also next month. And we're still waiting on the final commitment from Shamika. Randall, one of the Tennessee Vols, played on Pat Summers' team, 39-0. and 0. So we're going to bring in a lot, bring a lot at you. We'll continue to be the best in women's sports and HBCU athletics. And um, our sister station, if you want to hear more WNBA, NBA, Big Ten, football, Super Bowl, 9-10 a.m., WFDF, Mark Jones and Friends, Mark, Reggie, Jack, and, of course, Jim does double duty every Wednesday night, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Until then, we'll be happy to see you all. 168.
hours from now. Again, thank you, Coach Hamilton. Thank you so much. Uh, we will talk. Thank you. You got it. Thank you, Coach. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.